0: What a beautiful song. I can totally sing like that. I just don't want to. So, uh, My name is Matt Johnson. I'm pastor of Student Ministries here, and I'm so glad that we could be together uh, this morning. Uh, I want to just go ahead and start with this, just get it out there. Um, I'm a sports fan, but in particular, I'm a Dodgers fan. Yes. Uh, obviously, that's not very popular around here, and that's totally okay. I'm all right with that. Um, but... Uh, I do believe that there are many sports fans uh, in the house today. And gauging by the attendance, there's probably some NFL fans in here. Um, but the the life of the sports fan uh, brings with it serv- certain inevitabilities. Uh, very high highs and very low lows. And in particular, today, we're going to be talking about the, the lows. And what I mean by, by this right now is... When you're a sports fan, maybe the worst thing besides losing to a major rival is losing any game at the very last second, whether it's because you're on the, the wrong end of a walk-off home run or a ground ball that goes between a fielder's legs or a dropped pass or a caught pass uh, or a last-second shot, whatever it, it might be. That, that loss, and spe- specifically that last-second loss, is absolutely brutal and inside, your, your heart can just drop down to your feet. Your, your mouth can, get, uh, can go dry. Your eyes can get big. But what's also possible and really uh, very, very common, and perhaps some of you have even seen this or, or done it yourself, uh, what can happen is a physical posture known in the scientific community as the surrender cobra. If you don't know what the surrender cobra is, check out this video to learn a little bit more. A body language expert. Real scientists are examining this. This is an epidemic. All fans of all kinds experience this. Not just sports fans, but anyone who is invested emotionally in any sort of outcome. I mean, you should have seen my wife Caroline react when Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio didn't win all those Oscars. Are you kidding me? There's no way that he, that he was undeserving of that. We all experience this sense of Loss. Feelings of the surrender cobra are rampant in our lives. Sports fans or not, Leo fans or not, we all have this experience. We all experience loss in our lives. Literally and figuratively, we find ourselves in that surrender cobra posture with those feelings, those emotions. Did you catch what she said at the end? Thoughts racing. Anxiety Filling you, perhaps even being defensive. These situations fill our lives. Maybe one of these scenarios could could define uh, a situation in your life right now, or define or describe an aspect of your life right now. You've graduated from college, but that job that you had lined up didn't work out, and now you've moved back home albeit rent-free, but you're still at home. That relationship that you had so much hope for, whether it's uh, with a spouse or a family member, a boyfriend or a girlfriend that had so much potential, it just didn't go the way that you wanted. Those medical tests aren't coming back the way that you expected. You're in a job that is literally sucking the life out of you, but you can't quit because there is a family to support. And so you drag yourself to work every day, hoping for something more. We have all experienced, in the past, are currently in the present, or in the future, experiencing something or someone that will let us down, someone or something that will bring disappointment and pain. These things can rob us of joy, steal our hope for the future of what could be, Today in the story, we will, we will come across a story like this called Ruth, a story of loss and pain and disappointment, but also a story of great hope and redemption. If you're, if you're just joining us, the, we are in the middle of a series called The Story, but the story is not just the name of the series, it's also the name of a book, and it is an abridged version of the Bible in 31 chapters that reads like a novel and offers us the grand uh, narrative uh, really an, uh, an overview of God's big story and what he's doing. If you, if you don't have one of these and you would like to follow along with us as we read through the story, read through the Bible, these are available in the lobby for $5. You can check that out uh, after the service. And what we discovered two weeks ago in the this, in this story is that God had given the Israelites the promised land, starting with a, with a city called Jericho. They battled, they took the land, and they settled in. And then after they settle in, we, we saw last week uh, what is uh, described in the book of Judges, a 400-year uh, span of time where the Israelites perpetuate a cycle of rebelling against God, crying out to him to fix their, their problems that they've gotten themselves into. God delivers them, they live in peace, and then they do it all over again, over and over and over And it's in the midst of this timeline that we find uh, ourselves in chapter 9 of the story in a biblical book called Ruth. And today we have the monumental task of we are actually going to cover the entire story of Ruth. Previously in the story we've kind of just seen bits and pieces or just focused on one, one little part of a book. But today we're going to be able to cover the whole story. We're not going to be reading word for word, don't worry. But we are going to be getting that whole scope. And you can turn... Uh, to uh, chapter nine, if you're going through the the story book itself, or the Bible in the book of Ruth, chapter one, verse one, and <clears throat> excuse me, in these first few words of of Ruth, we get a lot, and it starts like this: "In the days that the judges ruled," and this is to mean in a time of turmoil and war there was a story that was unfolding in a peaceful countryside far from all of that chaos. And this is a story of peaceful countryside folks living their peaceful countryside lives. And we see that this story starts out with a man named Elimelech and his wife, Naomi. And we're going to find throughout the story of Ruth that the meaning of names are really important. And, we, first and first and foremost, the name Naomi means sweet and pleasant. This is to indicate that she is full, that she has a good life. And part of that good, good life, part of that fullness for her is her family. And her and Elimelech have two sons. But then a famine strikes the land. And so desperate, Elimelech and Naomi leave their home in Bethlehem. And just interestingly enough, Bethlehem means house of bread. And so they go to Moab to find food instead of remaining in their land, trusting God to provide. And the Moabite and Israelite relationship is interesting. The Moabites are descendants of a, of a drunken, incestuous relationship that Abraham's nephew Lot had. And they are, have been consistently in conflict with Israel. However, Elimelech and Naomi need food and they go to Moab in search of that. And then on top of the famine and being hungry and desperate, tragedy strikes. And Elimelech dies. However, in Naomi's perspective, she still has two sons. Okay, we can we can do this in this in this male-dominated culture. My two boys will have families. They will have uh, kids, hopefully more sons, and they will be able to provide for me for our family. Okay, so elimelech has gone; she's grieving, but I still have my two my two boys. However, uh, we see that as they as they grow, they do marry, but they they marry Moabite women, which was not allowed for the Israelites. But that's all right; they're still there. Maybe. Maybe the family will grow. God will do something. But again, tragedy strikes, and those two sons die, and they die before they're able to have kids. So now where we find ourselves are three widows grieving, Naomi and then her two daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah. Why is this happening? What did we do? What did I do? Why is God doing this? First Elimelech, then the two sons. Naomi has no family to carry on her name. In this culture, there's no way for her to provide for herself. She has no hope. And, she, and, and then, however, she hears that the famine has ended in Bethlehem. So in the midst of this grieving and this sorrow, okay, I can go back to Bethlehem. I can go back home and she's prepared to say, all right, daughters-in-law, you stay here. You stay where, where you belong, where you're from. I'm going to go back. You have more hope here. However, those, those in-laws of hers, her daughters, are fond of her. They're committed to her, and so they resist at first. In Ruth uh, chapter 1 verse 11, says, Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? And she's saying that she is bitter. And in this, she is isolating herself. No, no, no. Just leave. Go away. And effectively, she says, God has turned me into an enemy. He has done this to me. Now, when you're as exposed and as raw and hurt and broken and grieving the way that Naomi is, your theology, your understanding of God and how he works isn't always accurate but that doesn't negate those feelings that she's having of sadness, of anger. She says to her daughters, you two might have a hope and a future here in Moab. You have a better chance of getting remarried and having sons. This is where you are from. You have family. I think there's a lot here in this moment in this response from Naomi that we can relate with, feeling hopeless. Maybe... A little directionless, feeling empty. In fourteen, it continues as they wept aloud again. This is a very heavy moment in their family. As at this, they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. So Orpah says, "Okay, I'll stay here. I can see the plan that you're laying out." But Ruth, for some reason, stays and is loyal. To her. Ruth replies, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, even, even if death separates us. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. Ruth is saying, I'm not going anywhere. And Naomi says, fine, all right, cool, pack up the car, let's go, you win. And like I said, historically, Moab and Israel had been at odds. They had been enemies, they had been in constant conflict. And so it was risky in numerous ways for Ruth to leave her home, to go to Israel. Naomi had nothing to offer her. There was no welfare system that they could get on, no way to uh, collect assistance And if Ruth were to stay in Moab, then she would have her her family. There would be connections. She could could get plugged in, stay in her her, uh, support network. But she was determined. And in that determination, we see that she's willing to leave that home, that she's willing to turn from the God that she knows, the God that she worships, and adopt the family of Ruth, the God of Ruth, the one true God of Israel. And so they travel to Bethlehem. And upon their arrival, Naomi sees some old friends. And they greet her. Naomi, it's you. And she says in verse 20, Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me, the Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. She's saying God has not held up his end of the bargain. I used to be sweet and pleasant. Now I am now I am bitter. Call me Mara. Look what God did to me. She used to be full, now she is empty. She's angry. God. She's grieving. She's in pain. This isn't fair. This is not what I planned for. And so they get back to Israel and they've got to figure out okay, how, how are we going to survive? How are we going to get food? And for this next passage, we need to understand that there was a law that was set up that for poor people, there was a way that they could get free food in the fields. And this is a process called gleaning. So during the harvest time, harvesters would go through, the, go through the fields. And when things, when the overflow, when the scraps would fall to the ground, the poor, the hungry, the desperate were allowed for free to come in and collect scraps off of, off of the ground. And so this is their plan to go and glean. In Ruth 2, verse 2, And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. As it turned out. This is code for God is sovereign. God is in control. God has the power he is at work behind the scenes of in the midst of all of this it's not a coincidence it's a work of god and i i hope that we can see this little glimpses of this throughout this story and throughout all of scripture that maybe in our own lives as well god is up to something too so as it turned out in this not so random field she finds a relative a rich, godly relative, Boaz, and he invites her to have lunch. And he hears of her, of her story, gets to experience her, her character and her personality. And after lunch, he gives her crops to take home, what equals about 30 pounds of food. He understands that gleaning is dangerous. You get hungry, desperate people going in Probably mostly men. And he knows that for Ruth, this is maybe not such an easy task. And he says, okay, here is a gift. Here is some wheat. Here is some food for you to take. And so she takes it back home. And her mother-in-law, Naomi, says, where did you get all this? What a haul. Boss, mama, I love it. Way to go. And she says it was from the field of a man named Boaz. And Naomi's posture. It's as if it changes. Did you say, did you say Boaz? Hope. Hope begins to break through. 220. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. And this, to me, is where the whole story of Ruth hinges on Boaz being a guardian redeemer and this concept of guardian redeemer. And what this is, is that when a, when a family or a person came into tough times, if they became destitute, a guardian redeemer could come in, buy back land for the sake of the family, so that land could stay within the family, stay within the tribe. And that guardian redeemer would essentially rescue, provide for, protect, support his close family members. And so we find that Boaz is this guardian redeemer, someone who is going to provide for the future. The thing is, is that when you buy that land, though, then you also uh, are att- come attached to it are the people, and so it's it's a very uh, it's a very big deal to be a guardian redeemer and to buy back land. Naomi tells Ruth that. Boaz is going to be on the, on the threshing floor that night where they separate wheat from chaff. And so Boaz is going to be there and Naomi is de- devising a plan. Uh, not, If you read the story, not a scandalous plan, not a sleazy plan, but a plan that says, okay, we got to hook you guys up because he is our guardian redeemer. And so she tells Ruth to go down to the th- threshing floor, all dolled up, lay down at his feet and he will tell you what to do from there. He will lay out the plan. And again, this is not a hookup. This is not sleazy. This is not scandalous. This is an appropriate godly way for Ruth to make it known to Boaz, okay, I'm available. I'm willing to relocate. And I've, I have respect for you. Would, you. would you honor us by being our guardian redeemer? Ruth 3.8. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are the guardian redeemer of our family. The Lord bless you, my daughter. He replied, this kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a a woman of noble character." So he's not offended. He's not seeing this as, as a come on. This is an inappropriate an act of proposal of saying, would you marry me? And he's into it. He's honored. He's excited by this prospect of having that honor and that, that respect of being the guardian redeemer. But we find out that there is one relative who is more closely related to Naomi and Ruth than Boaz is. And so he knows that he has to go to them, go to him and make that offer. And so he pulls that relative that's in closer line that has, has the first right to being the guardian redeemer. He pulls that, that person in. We don't know his name, but pulls him in. And he pulls 10 of the city elders to have a, a, a conference on, okay, how do, we, how do we take this? And so Boaz sets up, okay, Elimelech has died. And here is this family. And Ruth, you are, you're the guardian redeemer Do you want to take, uh, first dibs, do you want to take on this honor of being the guardian redeemer? And he says, yes. Shoot. Okay. Well, hey, uh, you get the land. We know that. But it also comes with a mother-in-law. What do you think? (laughs) No, you know what? Um, Okay, mother-in-law, I, all right, maybe. But I've already got kids. Ruth doesn't have kids yet. That's, you know what? If I take this on, it'll make my kids' inheritance even smaller. It'll complicate things. You know what? Just forget it. I'm going to pass. Boaz says, awesome. Good talk, bro. Elders, you notarized this. Fantastic. Moving on. And Boaz and Ruth are married. And they have a son. Naomi, who had lost her husband and her sons, who, by her own words, had become bitter, is hopeless, now has hope. Verse 14 414, the women said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, that's saying something, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. Here Naomi is holding her grandson, her hope, Her future, her family name will not die, but will be carried on. And as this son grows up, he will help expand the family. He will help take care of grandma. She has a hope and a future now. She moves from bitterness and hopelessness to joy. She goes from empty to full. And this is the big idea for us this morning is that loss does not have to be your story's defining moment. When we read the story of Ruth, for those of us who are familiar with it, and even if you've read it for the first time or maybe later this week or today, you'll read the story for the first time, the defining moment of the story is the guardian redeemer, is the hope, is that there is a baby that comes out of this. It's not just about the loss of the husband and the sons. Loss doesn't have to be your story's defining moment. So we see that in the story of Naomi and Ruth, and we can see that in our lives as well. That emptiness, that hopelessness does not need to be the end of the story, even though emotionally it might feel like it. I have personal experience with this. Within the, within the last year, almost a year exactly uh, ago, I, I injured my shoulder and I severely separated Uh, My shoulder and it required surgery. And after I woke up from the surgery, uh, my hand was numb, and with that numbness came a very, very intense burning sensation. It felt like round the clock my hand was in fire. I lost sleep over it, and it was driving me, as best as I can define it, it was driving me crazy. And it allowed darkness to creep into my life. I was scared. And I was confused. I was afraid that my, my, my hand was always going to be like this. That I was not going to be able to feel it, but instead feel fire all the time. The muscle in my hand deteriorating, thinking, I don't know if I'll be able to start the, turn the keys in my car ever again. And that started to change me. It crept into my relationships. It crept into how I, I led here, how I, how I ministered here. And I was worried that this was going to be it, that this was going to be the end. But I was confronted in a very loving, gentle way, basically asking, what's going on? And I had a moment, I had, a, I had an option in that moment on how I was going to respond. Was I going to hide it? Was I going to mask it? Or was I going to shed light on it? And by the power and the grace of God, I had the courage to be open and honest and say, this is what's been happening with me. And it was even saying it out loud, truth started to come out that I wasn't even aware of. And so I talked to, that conversation was with Pastor Bill. I talked with other staff, pastoral staff members to let them know. I talked to, the, to ministry leaders in student ministries. I talked to trusted people around me. And I found in that moment in that moment of loss and pain and sadness and confusion and frustration, that response matters. My response matters. And then for us too, whether it's a particular life situation or it's looking at this story of Naomi and Ruth, what we can see is that your response matters. Looking at the scriptures, we see that Naomi may have been in a place of hopelessness, I may have been in a place of hopelessness, being in the posture of the surrender cobra. What am I going to do? But Ruth knew something deep down that they just needed to hold on. We have to keep going. Trust that God is moving. She had an option. They had an option. And we all do in moments like this. Will we respond with despair or will we have hope and faith in the Lord? Her response here, as do any, any kind of response. Her response had greatly influenced the direction of her story, of their story, and frankly, the direction of our story as well. There's a college professor by the name of Jerry Sitzer, and he wrote a book called A Grace Disguised. And in it, he details the most tragic night of his life. He was driving in a minivan with his family, and their car was struck by a drunk driver. And in an instant, he lost his mother, his wife, and his two-year-old child. And in this book, he talks about that moment Ever so briefly, and the rest of the other 200 pages is about how did he process that grief, that sorrow, that pain, what happened. In particular, he writes about his response to the grief and to the pain. And he writes that after a, a great time of grief and sorrow and anger and tears and exhaustion, he says this I had had enough of destruction and I did not want to respond to the tragedy in a way that would exacerbate the evil evil I had already experienced I knew that running from the darkness would only lead to greater darkness later on I also knew that my soul had the capacity to grow to absorb evil and good to die and live again to suffer abandonment and find god in choosing to face the night I took my first steps Toward the sunrise. I want to pause here and speak to a moment for those of us in the in the family, in the Beach Point family who are hurting. I want to say that I am sorry that you are hurting. We are here for you. God is here for you. He grieves with you, even if, even if the pain that you're experiencing, whether it's physical or it's emotional. Even if those things are a result of your own doing, God is with you and his heart breaks for you. And so practically speaking in those moments, how do we move forward towards healing and wholeness again? In times of loss and grief and profound disappointment, what I want to encourage, and this is much easier said than done, is to not rush the process, not rush through the pain. Because God might be wanting to do something in the midst of that. He may want to give you, it may be an opportunity for God to give you clarity or for you to maybe reprioritize. Or maybe God is taking that terrible situation and using it as as a launch pad into refining your character and making you more like Jesus, who we all know suffered as well. I want to encourage you to go to God with your frustration, with your confusion, and with your sadness. Talk to him. Cry to him. Yell. Shout if you have to. He's big enough. He can handle it. He can take it. But go to him. Ask God, where are you in this? And I would say allow trusted people in. In a thoughtful way, allowing people in, going to God in, in, in that, you're shedding light into the darkness. And perhaps just as important, how do you help people who are experiencing loss? How do you care for them? Well, I would say, be present. The power of your presence is significant and greater than anything that you could say. And certainly don't offer Advice, but be quick to offer practical help with meals or running errands. Be patient with them. Be patient with yourself. Don't rush the process. Be there. And so, no matter whose loss it is, no matter what kind of loss it is, your response matters. Ruth's response certainly mattered for Naomi, and it mattered. For herself, Naomi may have been in a place of hopelessness, but Ruth knew deep down that God was moving. He was up to something. Ruth's response to loss enabled them to experience what God had next, that he was up to something. He was behind the scenes, that redemption was on the way. It's as if you were to get a present. Nicely wrapped. This is gorgeous. It's a little too big to be the new iPhone, but could be maybe... what is it? What? This isn't what This isn't what I wanted. This isn't an iPhone. This is pain. This is hurt. This is loss. This is debt. This is cancer. This is unemployment. This is adultery. This is divorce. This isn't isn't what I put on my Amazon wish list. Are you kidding me? This is what I get, God. This isn't what I signed up for. And I want to tell you today that this does not need to be the end of your story. What's on the outside of the box does not need to be the defining moment Of your story. When you go to God and ask, Where are you? In the midst of your grief, where are you? When you allow people into the pain and the confusion, what you do is you open the box and see, God, what do you have in this for me? And when Naomi and Ruth had hope and they went to God and they they trust it, even though it took a long time. And Ruth, maybe sets a different kind of example than Naomi does. Naomi dragging her feet, feeling bitter and empty, but still God works in her. They open the box and they see a son, they see a grandson, they see a hope and a future. They see redemption from despair to hope. Ruth four seventeen. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him. Obed. They are rejoicing with her. This is exciting. This terrible life situation has turned into something great. It has been redeemed. And so they named the son Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And so as they look in that box to see what God has for them, it is the beginnings of the lineage that leads to King David. Ruth's great-grandson is King David. If you were with us two weeks ago, you heard a story of a prostitute named Rahab in the city of Jericho who helped two Israelite spies escape. And that connects, and I I believe that Pastor Jason laid that out for us, but uh, in the the Gospel of Matthew chapter 1, he lays out how that connects. Why do we care about this Rahab person, and how does it connect to this? Matthew 1. Solomon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. Rahab to Boaz, to Obed, to Jesse, to David, to Jesus. This terrible situation had been redeemed. Naomi goes from hope to despair and she finds that she not just has redemption but she has a redeemer and deep down in the box of the pain and the anguish and the hurt is another gift of Jesus and so we see we see that through all this tragedy all through the loss god was bringing about a better And the true guardian redeemer, our redeemer, Jesus, the one who can take not just life situations that are bad into good, but can take spiritual status from bad into good, can redeem us, not just situationally, but spiritually. And that's where I want to end today, is that we have hope because we have a redeemer. We have hope because we have a Redeemer. Beyond the pain, beyond the loss, beyond the doubt, death, beyond the emptiness, we can be redeemed. Our situations can be redeemed. Our spiritual lives, our souls can be redeemed. We have a Redeemer, and because we have a Redeemer, we have hope. And hope is not a feeling. It is a person. Loss does not need to define your story. Your s- response so that loss can be more powerful and beautiful and influential. Your story can be about redemption. Let God be at work in you to heal you. Let him show you what's beyond the loss. God has a redeemer for you, has a redeemer for us, and his name is Jesus. Let's pray. Father, this is certainly a topic that is too big to discuss in one sermon. I pray as we reflect and as we sit in this time, as we sing these next couple of songs, that you would give us courage to look inward. Be gentle with us, God, as we come to you. God, may we praise you for providing for us a guardian Redeemer. We praise you, God. We praise you for the victory that we have in his name. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for being our Redeemer who can redeem us spiritually, but also redeem our situations consistently and constantly over and over again, God. Thank you for that. I thank you for that love. Thank you for that grace.